Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for the praises that we've just heard, Father, that how you're working in the health of some of the believers that we are aware of. We do want to lift up Norm and Father, continue to lift him up as he most likely is entering into the last days of his life. Father, we thank you so much for his contributions to Lakeside and we ask that you be with him and his family, Father, as they go through this time. Father, Christmas can be a very lonely time for many, Father, uh, because of loss and, and memories. And Father, we just pray that that would not be the case for believers here, that they would be able to really bask in the glory of your Son coming to earth. And Father, this time would be a special time. May the service all throughout Lakeside this morning with all the Sunday school classes, the worship hour, may you embolden your teachers to proclaim the good news, Father, and that all of those listening, Father, would be just quick to hear the message that a Savior came. And Father, may we worship and glorify your Son this morning in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I told you last week, I might do a Christmas message, and so I am. I think it might be the first time in my life I've ever actually done a lesson on the Christmas story. So if you want to be turning to chapter Luke, that's pretty much where you find the Christmas story. There's a few other places where you could preach on Christmas, but Luke chapter 2 is the most famous of those. We're going to be looking at the, we'll read the first 14 verses of chapter 2, then we're going to take a closer look at verses 8 through 14 this morning. And as I said, I don't have to tell you that these are some of the most familiar words in all of the Bible. The passage is read all around the world at this time of year. So there's probably nothing that I'm going to say that's new, nothing that's probably you haven't heard before, but isn't the message worth repeating and worth remembering? Before I read the passage, I want to begin by telling a short story that happened near the end of World War II. As you probably know, near the end of the war, there were many prison camps in Nazi Germany where American prisoners were being held. There's a story told in a camp, one camp, where the soldiers were not well fed. Many were thin and on the verge of starvation. Many were sick. You know that they must have been discouraged, wondering if they would ever live to go home again, wondering if they would ever spend another Christmas with their families. The German soldiers on the other side of the barbed wire fences saw their desperate faces, their somber expressions. They scarcely talked to each other. But one morning, everything changed. They were still behind fences. They were still poorly fed. They were still sick. But the guards noticed that their demeanor had changed drastically. Suddenly, they were happy. They were smiling. They were talking and gathering in little huddles. You even heard an occasional bout of laughter. The guards had no idea what was going on, but they knew something had changed. What had happened was that a small transistor radio had been smuggled in and the prisoners of war had heard the news that the Allied forces had landed. They had triumphed. They were moving inland and it would only be a few days before they were rescued. Liberation was happening. Now the point of this short story is the power of news. Nothing had changed. 
Their situation was exactly the same, but news had awakened hope. Throughout history, there have always been people who are very much like these prisoners because as you look around the world at any time in the past as well as today, there are horrific things that come into the life of everyone. You have political turmoil, war, natural catastrophes, specific hardships like losing a job, house burns down, child gets sick, spouse dies way too early. Like the soldiers, you may feel trapped within the fence, but there is news that has the power to change everything. And that's the message of Christmas. The message delivered to those shepherds out in the fields on the outskirts of Bethlehem is the most powerful, life-changing news ever delivered and received. The message that is so familiar, so well-known, that millions of people all around the world are familiar with has the power within it to change everything. And for many it has. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The good news that was proclaimed. The greatest news ever proclaimed. So I'm going to read the story of Christmas as Luke tells us in chapter 2 of his gospel. Beginning in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to the firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8 begins, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That is the greatest news ever told. Now, the way I've chosen to break down the familiar verses this morning is to look at the recipients of the good news, the messenger of the good news, the content of the good news, and the result of this good news. So let's begin with the recipients. The initial recipients of this good news is told to us in verse 8. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. The prior verses tell us about Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem to register for the census. And because there was no vacancies in the end, they ended up delivering the baby and placing him in a manger, a feeding trough. And it says these shepherds, we are told that they are in the same region, which means they were probably in the outskirts of town. We know a lot about the life of a shepherd from history. 
We know that the life of a shepherd was really hard work. It was a seven day a week, 24 hour a day job. They had to attend the sheep all day long. They had to lead them to pasture. They had to make sure there was water for them to drink. They were constantly on guard to protect them from wild animals, especially at night. They spent most of their time out away from the city, apart from their families, sleeping out in the elements. You can imagine the rough terrain, the heat, the cold, the rain. These were rugged, hard-working men. Many times they were young men. Many families, it was the youngest male's job to tend the sheep. Sometimes it was hired out to professional shepherds. Most commentaries, if you read them, think shepherds were part of the lower class. We know from Genesis 46 that the Egyptians thought that they were an abomination and that they were not allowed to dwell near them. From extra biblical writings, we read that they were not allowed to be a witness in court. Some think since they went out away from the city and because they were not able to obey the dietary laws and the rules for observing the Sabbath and things like that, that was one reason that they were looked down upon. But when you read scripture, you also find that there were very prominent men in the Bible that were shepherds. Moses, Abraham, David were all shepherds. It was a very common job. There would have been many, many shepherds in the area. This was an important occupation. It was a big part of their economy. Not just for the families involved. There was a whole business built around the sacrificial system. And sheep were a big part of that. So there were many, many shepherds in the area around Jerusalem. I was thinking about, it kind of compares to me to the coal mines of eastern Kentucky. A few years ago, if you went into eastern Kentucky, everywhere you went, you would find coal miners. And I think that was similar. There were shepherds everywhere in the area around there. It was long, hard work. Working in the coal mine didn't pay very well, but it paid the bills. And it was something to do. What else was there to do? I imagine that somehow what it was like being a shepherd. Not a high-class, fancy job. Just common, hard-working people trying to get by doing what they had to do. But as we think about the importance of the good news that was about to be announced, the greatest news ever, and not just announced by anybody, announced by who? An angel. This is who the recipients God chose to bring this greatest news ever to. These common laborers who were not highly respected, who were part of the lower class. These were the first recipients of the greatest news ever to be proclaimed in the world. What's the point of this line of discussion? The point is, in a world where there's over 7 billion people, have you ever felt small and insignificant? I'm overwhelmed by that fact, that God chose a lower class of common laborers to announce the greatest news ever. In a world where movie stars, professional athletes, and highly publicized political figures take center stage, have you ever felt like your life was not that important? You would have thought the news would have gone to the Pharisees, the emperors, the kings of the earth, the high and mighty. Those were the important people of the world. The message of Christmas refutes that type of thinking. The greatest news ever announced was announced to a group of shepherds out in the fields. And not only was the news first proclaimed to lowly shepherds, every detail 
of the events of Christ coming to earth refute that. Jesus came in poverty, not in wealth. He was born of a common young woman named Mary who had a carpenter husband named Joseph, born in a no-place city called Bethlehem, not even in a house but in an animal stable, laid in a feeding trough. But as you learn about these facts, you also learn that amazingly this was all part of God's design. That these truths were prophesied many years ago, that they were planned before the world was ever formed, and not only did the news not go to the people who would think that they would be important, they were actually pawns in God's plan. One example would be how God put it upon the heart of Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, to invoke a census that would require everyone to go to their hometown. That's the whole reason Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem. That was to fulfill the prophecy in Micah 5. I was reminded of a verse, and I looked it up. It's Proverbs 21.11 that says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The point is, we have a big God, and he cares about little people. I want to leave you with this thought about this point. God still does that today. For people like you and me. God has a plan and a purpose for us. It's not beyond Him to move the hearts of even kings to make it happen. He has an empire at His disposal to bless His children. And we are His children. Scripture teaches us that God cares for every one of His children. He chose the shepherds to be the first recipients of the greatest news ever proclaimed. And he chooses each of us for his specific reasons as well. Don't ever feel unimportant or insignificant. We are children of the eternal king who uses whomever and whatever he desires to accomplish his will and purposes in us. That's the recipient of the good news. Let's talk about the messenger of the good news. Who came to proclaim the good news to the shepherds? Says an angel of the Lord. Verse 9. They're out in the field watching their flock at night. And verse 9 says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now the angel's name is not mentioned. Actually, do you know how many names of angels are mentioned in the Bible? Everybody says two. That's partially correct. There's two good angels listed. There are several bad angels listed by name. But the ones you're thinking of, of course, are Gabriel and Michael. Michael's listed a few times and is described as the archangel. The name archangel means chief angel. This would imply that he is among the highest rank of the angels. Many times when he is mentioned, he's mentioned in the context of a battle of some sort. The other named angel is Gabriel. He's the most mentioned in the Bible, he's almost always mentioned in the context of a messenger. He appears several times to Daniel, usually to explain some visions. In the New Testament, he appears to Zechariah to give him the message about his wife Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist. A little while later, he appears to Mary with the announcement of the birth of Jesus. He appears a couple of times to Joseph, Mary's future husband. He seems to be one of God's chief messengers. But here in our text, the angel's name is not mentioned, but he he is an angel. And what is the normal response 
of someone coming into contact with an angel? Fear. Fear. If they realize it's an angel. In fact, almost always the words are of the angel began by saying, fear not, because they were afraid. Turn back a page or two to Luke 1. Luke 1, verse 11. This is the passage where an angel appears to Zechariah to inform him about Elizabeth's pending pregnancy and future birth of his son, John the Baptist. The angel is identified in verse 19 as the angel Gabriel. But listen to what happened when he appeared to him. In verse 12, he says, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fell upon him, and fear fell upon him. In verse 13, it says, Gabriel tells Zechariah not to be afraid. On down a few verses to verse 30, when the angel appeared to Mary, the angel there has to tell Mary to not be afraid. And this happens throughout Scripture, when someone encounters angels. If you remember the encounter at the tomb of Jesus, when the angel rolled back the stone, there was no record there of the angels telling the guards that were there guarding the tomb to not fear. Do you remember what happened to them? They fell like dead men. They went to sleep. They fell unconscious like dead men. And then later when the women showed up, it says that the angel said to Mary and them, do not be afraid. So when the angel appeared to Paul, when he was on a ship in a storm, the angel assured them that they would survive the storm and the shipwreck. The first thing the angel says to Paul is, fear not. That's a common theme from God's messengers, the angels, fear not. Now, that's not the message. Do not fear is not the message. It's just a few important words from the messenger before he shares the message. If we wanted, we could talk about the admonition to not fear for quite some time. Because it's really a big problem in the world today. There are people afraid of everything. There are hundreds of listed phobias, which are just things people are afraid of. People are afraid to fly in an airplane, ride in an elevator, sleep in the dark. People are afraid of birds, snakes, clowns. Were you ever lost as a child? That's a fearful thing. People are afraid of being alone. One of the biggest things people are afraid of, afraid of dying. God came that we would not be afraid any longer. But in the context of our passage, why do you suppose there was a need for the angel to say, do not fear? I think it was because of the actual event of seeing an an angel for real. It's not every day one has an angel appear to them and talk to them. Now, sometimes in Scripture, angels may have appeared as ordinary men. That's happened frequently. But many times they show up in a more dramatic way. In the case at the tomb, Matthew says, The angel appeared like lightning and his clothes white as snow. Back in our text in verse 9 of chapter 2, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Can you picture the glory of the Lord shining around them? I don't know exactly what that was, but I know it was a brilliant light. Think about this. Angels are spiritual beings. They are able to stand in the presence of God. And I think some of that fear came from the glory of the Lord that was there in their presence. If you read scripture, almost always when even a partial manifestation of the glory of the Lord showed up, men went to their knees. If not willingly, they were knocked to their knees. I think it's that aspect that frightened them. 
Now, we don't know what this angel looked like, but we are told in Scripture some descriptions of some types of angels. In Ezekiel 1, we are given a description of a type of angel called the cherubim. You don't have to turn there if you don't want, but I want to read a section from Ezekiel 1 that gives a really good description of the cherubim. Ezekiel says, Ezekiel 1, beginning in verse 4, he said, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. In the midst of the fire is, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. But each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on four sides they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings. Thus their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another. While two covered their bodies. I'm going to stop reading. It goes on. It's kind of an awesome picture of some angels, right? That's the cherubim. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have another type of angel called the seraphim. Isaiah 6, chapter 6, verse 1 talking about the year the king Uzziah died and in verse 2 it says above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then it talks about the seraphim flying to him, having his hand in a burning coal. It goes on, but this is the seraphim. What an awesome picture of some angels. Now we can gather from Scripture that there are obviously different categories of angels cherubims seraphims we know there's probably more we know from scripture that cherubim and seraphim didn't have much contact with people there were angels who looked and appeared like men and they interacted with men sometimes people even unaware that they were angels then we have the archangel michael and gabriel the chief messenger when they appeared they usually had to tell people to not be afraid so there was something about them that made people afraid. And just for your knowledge, it's never mentioned outside the cherubim and seraphim, the other angels are never described as having wings. It, Michael and Gabriel, when you see their pictures, they always have pictures with wings, but we're never that's never told in Scripture. It does say they flew, but it doesn't say they had wings. So I don't know what the angel that appeared to the shepherds looked like, But I think it's safe to say that his appearance was not ordinary. He was different than a man. It was plain to the shepherds that something unusual was happening. And it caused them to tremble and fear. 
the thought came to me, have you ever been called into the principal's office or the boss's office and you're a little bit nervous as you go in wondering what this was all about? What am I in trouble for? What have I done? It's not something that happens every day. It's something that's unusual to be called into the presence of someone who is higher up than you. And when the boss immediately says to you, nothing's wrong, everything's okay, what's he trying to do? He's trying to calm you down so you can hear what he's about to say to you. I think that's what the angel was doing, calming them down so that they could hear the message he was about to give to them. He's going to say, and what he says is, I'm about to bring you some really good news. An angelic being, a spiritual being from heaven, bearing the glory of heaven and God, was the messenger of this good news. It was more than a dream or a vision. It wasn't a note or a letter from a friend. This message came from a special angel, supernatural being, that came directly from the presence of God. To me, that shows the very significant, important message that was about to be given. So we've seen the recipient of the good news. We've seen the messenger of the good news. Now for the content of the good news. What news was it that was so important that an angel was sent to proclaim it? The good news is told to us in verse 11. Verse 11 says... For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The content of the greatest news ever was not information. It was a person. The good news was and is that a person had come. And not just any person. Not just any baby. We know the person is Jesus. But the angel did not proclaim to them his personal name, did he? He used three titles to describe the person. Do you know what the word Jesus means? It means the Lord saves. It means Savior or the Lord saves. Matthew one twenty one tells us, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. The angel didn't use his personal name, but it was encompassed in the first title that he used. Savior. That's the reason Jesus came, to save. As I thought about that, I thought how in many times in contemporary Christianity today, the meaning and purpose of Jesus' coming is lost or at least minimized. Many times Jesus is projected as coming to save marriages or help people find fulfillment in their life, in their jobs, in their families. To provide relief from loneliness or freedom from addiction. Although those things may be a byproduct, let us not ever forget that Jesus came for a specific reason. To save us from our sin. That's every person's true problem. And the wages of sin, the Bible says, is what? Death. Which means hell, wrath, judgment. Because we all sin, we all are guilty. Jesus came to save us from guilt. Not the guilt that is an emotional feeling, but a real God-imposed guilt that demands condemnation. That's why the angel described the baby as a savior. He came to save those condemned by their sin. 
to relieve and take upon him their guilt, thereby freeing them from condemnation. The second term the angel used was Christ. There has been born for you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. Do you know what Christ means? Anointed. It's the same as the term Messiah. The anointed, the chosen one. Placed in a high position worthy of honor and exaltation. Now there are a couple of ways this can be applied. First and foremost, I think Jesus was anointed in the sense of being king. Do you remember what the angel told Mary back in chapter 1, verse 30? We're told, he told Mary, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob and forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. In Revelation 17, in describing the final war, we're told that they will make war on the Lamb and He will overcome because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Not only is He anointed as King of Kings, He's also anointed as the Supreme High Priest. Hebrews 3.1, 1 Timothy 2.5 and other places tell us He is appointed High Priest, the only mediator between God and man. Jesus is the Savior He is the Christ, the anointed one. And the third description the angel uses is Lord. This word in human terms is used of someone who is in leadership or who has authority and is deserving of respect. It was used many times in the Bible describing the relationship between slaves and owners. To call someone Lord was to acknowledge you were under their submission. Even Sarah, you remember, called her husband Abraham Lord. She wasn't saying that she was a slave, but she was acknowledging his authority over her and her submission to him. But the angel's use of this word was much more than just a human designation. It's also a divine designation. Saying that Jesus, this baby, is Lord is in fact saying he is God. The word used for Lord is kurios. It's translated in Septuagint from Yahweh, the name of God. The great I am. It refers to all sovereignty and all authority. By the angel describing this baby as Lord, he is in essence saying he is God. Now this is the basic fundamental truth of Christianity that Jesus is Lord. If one does not believe in the full deity of Christ and his equality with God, he cannot be saved. In John 8, 24, Jesus himself said this. He said, unless you believe that I am, and you know what that meant, you will die in your sins. So in these three descriptions, we have the content of the good news. A baby is born. He is God come to earth, Emmanuel. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, the King of kings, Lord of lords. And he's come to save you from your sin. No other news has ever or will be more important than this. So we've seen the recipient of the good news, the messenger of the good news, and we've seen the content of the good news. So what's the result of the good news? After the angel gave the good news that a Savior, the anointed Christ child, was born, he said that he is the Lord, he's been born in Bethlehem, and then he goes on in verse 12 to tell the shepherds how to identify him. He said, you will find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger, which we know is a feeding trough. 
this would guide them to be able to identify him. There probably wasn't the only child born that night. But they would be able to identify him by the fact that he was going to be lying in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And then what happened immediately after this? Look at verse 13. In verse 13, it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. I don't know how many a multitude is, but it leaves me with the impression there was too many to count. whole bunch of angels suddenly showed up. What a sight this must have been. There are not many places in Scripture where there were a multitude of angels at one time. And there was a spontaneous explosion of rejoicing that then took place. Which leads us to the primary result or purpose of the good news, which is God's glory. What were the angels doing? Praising God. Glory to God in the highest. That's what we all should be doing every time we hear this good news. Praising and glorifying God. Nothing brings God more glory than His plan to redeem a sinful people to be exalted to spend eternity with Him coming to fruition. And think about this. The angels knew the condition of men. They have been witnesses to all of this. They were spectators of the fall. They rejoice, the Bible says, every time a sinner repents and turns to the Lord. Turn over a couple of pages to Luke 15. Look at Luke 15, verse 7. Luke 15, verse 7 says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then on down a few verses to verse 10 Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's one of the results of the good news. God is glorified. The angels glorify God upon this announcement because they understood it meant salvation for many men, women, and children who would otherwise perish. Nothing brings more glory to God than His plan of redemption coming to pass. The second result of this good news is the remainder of verse 14. Verse 14 of Luke 2 says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Another result of the good news is peace. The first result is a heavenly result, God's glory. The second result is an earthly result, peace. Now, that is manifested actually in several ways. First and foremost, it's manifested as peace with God. You're familiar with Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we were saved, we were at war with God, whether you knew it or not. And we know who would win that war, don't we? Without Christ coming, we would still be at war. James in his letter says that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Jesus came to make a way for us to have peace with God. The second manifestation, he is peace with ourselves. Only those at peace 
with God can have real peace with themselves. John fourteen twenty seven. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John sixteen thirty three. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you may have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious for anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's only because Christ came and made a way for us to have peace with God that we can have real peace with ourselves. Thirdly, it is manifested as peace with others. Now that we have peace with God, and peace with ourselves, we are free and able to live at peace with others. We need the Holy Spirit's help, but with His help, we are called to live at peace with those around us. Hebrews twelve fourteen says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. 1 Peter three ten, we are told to seek peace and pursue it. Ephesians 4 says we're told to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What's a bond of peace? It's the bond of Christ. The final manifestation of peace on earth will be at his second coming when he will reign on earth in peace for a thousand years after which he will win the final war with Satan and his followers and that will usher in the new heaven and the new earth and a peace that will never end, Isaiah says. So there is peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with others and someday a literal complete peace on earth when he comes to conquer and reign at his second coming. But there's a condition that we glanced over back in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among who? Those whom he is pleased. Now, I don't know what your version said. If you're reading out of the King James, it might say, and goodwill to men. That's on a lot of the Christmas cards, isn't it? Peace on earth and goodwill to men. I don't believe that's a very good interpretation. That's what I memorized as a child out of the King James. But that sounds very different than peace on earth among those whom he is pleased, doesn't it? The translation from the King James, I don't think is very accurate, as I said. According to the commentaries that I have in the Greek, it literally reads, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men of his good pleasure. That's what the, why the ESV, which I'm reading from, says, with whom he is pleased. The New American Standard says the same thing. The NIV says, peace to those on whom his favor rests. That seems to be the closest to the original. Peace on earth to those who have God's favor. And we know what it takes for God to have favor, right? You have to be one of his children. And basically, this again gets into the sovereignty of God, doesn't it? His favor rests on whom he will have favor. That's the result of the good news. And it's important, I think, that we don't think that peace on earth is something that happens to all men. It happens to those who God is pleased. That's the result of the good news, that a Savior was born that was proclaimed by a glorious angelic being to the lowly shepherds over 2,000 years ago. That's the greatest news ever reported. But interestingly, 
it was not really the birth of Jesus that Scripture places the most importance on. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but do you know how many of the Gospels give the details of Christ's birth? Just Luke. Now, Matthew tells about Joseph and Mary's betrothal, and then it just states that they had a son and called him Jesus. It does mention the wise men, but the wise men came quite some time after the birth. Mark begins by talking about John the Baptist. Jesus first shows up on the scene by requesting John to baptize him. John talks about the Word being God, being with God, being God, and becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It's a really important stuff, but it's not really many facts about his birth. If we hadn't had Luke's account, we would know very little about the birth. We wouldn't have a manger scene. Christmas cards would look a lot different. I'm not saying Christ's birth is not important. It most certainly is. And the title of my lesson is The Greatest News Ever. But where does Scripture place the emphasis? It's on His death, His burial, and His resurrection. All four of the Gospels write about that. And that's because the purpose of Jesus' birth, the whole reason for coming, was to die. He would eventually overcome the sting of death by God resurrecting him after he had become the, the sacrificial lamb, the substitutionary death for sinners. You cannot talk about the good news without finishing the story, as Paul Harvey said, the rest of the story. To be the Savior, to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, the Anointed One, to be Lord encompasses not only His birth, but also His death, burial, and resurrection. You cannot celebrate Christmas without acknowledging the rest of the story. Jesus coming as a baby in a manger is not the good news. The good news is that He is coming as Savior, as Christ, as Lord. And that's why the angel said He brought good news of great joy. That's why we can and do sing joy to the world. May the good news of Christmas, the greatest news ever proclaimed, news fit for a king, but delivered to lowly people like me and you, news brought by and witnessed by majestic, angelic, spiritual creatures, bring you great joy. May it cause you to glorify God And live in peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We cannot begin to thank you enough for what you did by sending your Son into the world those many years ago. Father, we acknowledge our need for a Savior. We thank you for your sovereign redemption of us. If there's anyone here today who has not... Come to you, Father, in faith. We pray that you would have mercy upon them and bring them to yourself this morning. Father, we pray for all those around this building today that hear the news proclaimed on this day so close to Christmas, Father, that they would really grasp the true significance, who they truly are, their true natures, and what Christ did for them. And may that, Father, begin a path of peace for them with you and Father, with themselves. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.